Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies. My name is David Fauser. Today I'm joined by uh, historian Joanna Dill, whose book is Seismic City, an Environmental History of San Francisco's 1906 Earthquake. Uh, Dr. Dill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. I'm excited to talk to you. And and I'm excited for, to hear from you as well. Now, this is a, a fascinating book that takes uh, an event that in one sense lasted for something like a minute. Uh, but you spin this out into a, a complex story of the way that San Francisco is a seismic city, that it's a city that it's shaped by its seismic and sort of geological conditions. Now, I wonder if you could, if you could begin by uh, telling us a little bit about San Francisco the day before this 1906 earthquake in April. Sure. Um, And San Francisco in April of 1906 was definitely a bustling major city. Um, It was the eighth largest city in the country with a population of about 400,000 people. Um, It was a very diverse city, Um, but it was a city in which um, both class and race really shaped the the spaces of the city, a city with a high degree of spatial segregation along both of those lines. So you had a very crowded Chinatown, um, not as crowded as it had been a couple of decades before prior to exclusion, but still a very crowded um, district that was important to the economy of the city, um, but also a place where the Chinese people suffered a tremendous amount of um, racial discrimination. Um, You had bustling working class neighborhoods like South of Market. You also had the more upscale neighborhoods. Um, You had the great mansions of Knob Hill. Um, You had neighborhoods like the Western Edition that were more of the upper middle class, um, the newer suburbs. And San Francisco was in a period of transition from really the Victorian era to a modern era. Um, So you had a city with um, sort of increasing sanitary concerns, increasing interest in planning and modernization of the infrastructure of the city. Um, You also had a city with a tremendous um, class, you know, class divides and class inequality, um, like probably all of the country in 1906. Now, San Francisco grew up quite rapidly, you know, from a small village to a metropolis uh, really immediately after the gold rush. Uh, Can you tell us, though, how San Francisco developed in, say, the 50 or so years leading up to um, 1906? Sure. Um, And this this process of rapid development, um, it was one that also was not a smooth process. And that's something that I emphasize in um, the first chapter of the book that this was a very contingent process of development, um, that San Francisco saw a series of great fires in the 1850s that repeatedly um, interrupted the 
the growth of the young city. Um, it's had two earthquakes in the 1860s, one in 1865 and one in 1868, that um, showed some of the same patterns of risk that would become so predominant in 1906. Um, so even as San Francisco is growing, as it's developing into the major metropolis of the Pacific Coast, um, and it's doing so incredibly quickly with an incredible um, influx of capital to, to build the city, um, it's also suffering these, um, these setbacks and these environmental challenges, um, some of which, like seismic activity, are inherent in the location of San Francisco and others, like the fires, that are shaped more by the, the processes of development of, you know, building first largely a, a tent city and then um, fairly quickly a wooden city um, on this, on this peninsula. And so fire was the real concern of the early city. How did they, how did they meet the challenge of fire? How did they combat or try to prevent that particular kind of disaster? They did a couple of things. Um, they invested in, for the time, a, a fairly strong um, fire department, um, but they also worked to build their city in ways that would reduce that risk. Um, so, for example, the early development of San Francisco had developed out over the water um, with plank streets reaching out to stranded ships. Um, ships would literally come in for the gold rush and the draw of gold was so great that um, the crews would desert and the ship wouldn't be able to leave. So those ships were actually you know, built into the city and essentially became um, structures in the early history of San Francisco. Um, but this development was so oriented toward the water um, that the city was built out over the water with these plank streets. Um, and in the, um, the Great Fire... I want to say 1852. I might have the year wrong on that from memory. Um, that burned along these planks. The fire just raced along um, the plank streets of the um, the waterfront district. And after that, San Franciscans tried to adapt um, by using fill. And rather than sort of building out with these plank streets, they filled in um, the waterfront areas. They also tried to build fireproof buildings in the case of the really wealthy residents who would try to build these, um, you know, concrete and, and iron fortresses um, to stand against fire. Another step they took was a, a series of cisterns around the city to store water for protection against fire, because um, they didn't have a water system in a, in a modern sense for um, several decades of a real one. Now, would, do, do these measures appear to have been relatively effective? That is, does fire, does fire sort of shape the early building of the city? They implement these, these measures, and then they, they seem to have solved the problem? Yeah. Um, they still worried about fire, but um, the last of the, the major fires was um, in the mid-1850s. Um, certainly, even in the early 20th century, Fire was a concern to observers of the city. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from a report by the National Board of Fire Underwriters from 1905, saying that San Francisco had defied the odds by not burning up and you know, noting all you know, the high winds, um, the steep hills that made it difficult to reach a lot of the city um, for, for fighting fires. Um, 
the you know, rows upon rows of wooden buildings. Um, a lot of these are still sort of characteristics of San Francisco, um, but these really seemed like like high fire risks um, even in 1905. Um, so that's sort of one of those things that that's hovering there on the um, on the eve of the earthquake as well. Now, the, their treatment of fire seems to stand in pretty sharp contrast to early San Franciscans' treatment of and, and experiences with and responses to earthquakes. And now, you mentioned that there were some earthquakes in, I believe, the 1850s and especially in the 1860s. How did they respond to those kinds of, those kinds of seismic activities? And, and how did that shape the perception of San Francisco or California broadly as earthquake country? That, yeah, that perception is really there already in the 1850s. Um, this this idea of yeah of California's earthquake country um, and sort of you know jokes about the reactions of Easterners. Um, so that that sense is there from from very very early. Um, but there weren't any substantial earthquakes in those first. This would be what, you know, 15 to 20 years of, of San Francisco's history. Um, there had been some quakes earlier in the 19th century, but before San Francisco was, was really a city. Um, so it's not until 1865 and then 1868 um, that any quakes that you know, did really substantial damage hit the city. And by that point, a lot of the patterns of development had already been set, um, although observers, both you know, local newspapers and then also local scientists, particularly in response to 1868, um, wrote about the patterns of risk and particularly the ways in which made land, in which the, the fill along the coast that um, was the site of so many structures in San Francisco um, showed its instability in an earthquake and where the, so that the worst damage could be seen tracing along those lines of fill. Um, so that was very visible in 1865 and, and particularly in 1868. And the initial reactions from, you know, the newspapers um, were that they would rebuild better, that, you know, this wouldn't be a problem in the future. Um, what actually happened was what had happened in response to the fires of the 1850s, which is they rebuilt as quickly as possible um, with only a few sort of isolated buildings that um, really show a, an awareness of that risk and a real concern with um, you know, seismic safety. So the imperatives of capital then are, are a theme that run throughout this, this work. And they certainly were operating then in the second half of the 19th century to encourage rapid development. Uh, aware though they were that both fire and earthquake were, were problems, uh, the, I guess the incentives are just to, to build as quickly as possible, um, to, to maximize gains in the short term, despite these risks. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. Now, can, can we spend a moment on the, on the issue of landfill? Uh, because it does play such a central role in the earthquake. And, and you, you, you've already noted that, that they built a lot, uh, along the waterfront. Uh, first you describe how they, how they drive these, you know, enormous wooden piles into these mud flats. And then later on they use landfill. Is there a, can you maybe tell us about why they didn't simply build on the existing land? Why was landfill an attractive or, or desirable thing to do in the first place? I think it's the answer to that um, comes down to economics um, and the, the commercial orientation of San Francisco and the orientation toward the water. Because in these early decades, um, almost all 
of the of the commercial traffic is coming in through the waterfront. Um, San Francisco is you know not yet linked um, to the rest of the country by the railroad, right? Not until um, 1869, um, and getting there overland um, is a very very long route. Um, so most traffic is coming in. So the city really grew up with its an orientation toward the water. Um, and the other part of that is the topography of San Francisco, that it was very, very hilly. Um, so there was not a lot of flat land to build on. Um, so creating flat land along that waterfront and this, this valuable, um, commercially valuable land became the, um, the goal. They do, right, they do build inland and up the hills, but the most valuable land is that that's closest to the waterfront um, where the, you, know, you can build a pier out. Um, and get that commercial traffic and make that money. So they start just building out over the water. And really within a, a few years, it filled in a lot of the Yerba Buena Cove, the initial cove where um, the first settlement took place, or the first little little town that became San Francisco. And you describe at one point how at least one of the major hills of San Francisco is itself carved up uh, to serve as landfill. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, at the, the second street cut or, or um, Rincon Hill gets carved. Yeah. Sort of cut away. And, and, and that's one, actually one of the later, um, that's in the, that's in the 1860s um, that that takes place. Okay. So uh, on the eve of this earthquake, then we have a city of about 400,000 people. There's a substantial population of Chinese Americans uh, who've been part of California for decades at this point. There's a relatively robust population as well of recent Italian immigrants, uh, as well as a more established kind of Anglo-American population. So we have a kind of uh, racial mix in the city. We've got some clear class divides. We have a city that is commercially oriented, um, and a significant portion of it, if not the whole thing, is built on, on landfill. Uh, yeah, uh, and then a, the earthquake. a significant portion in a lot of the key neighborhoods. Um, a lot of the residential mm-hmm. neighborhoods are growing up more inland by 1906. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the business district, um, the South American district, um, those are, are built substantially on fill. Okay. Sorry. And then so, <laughs> oh, not at all. Not at all. Now, can you describe the earthquake then in, in, uh, sort of, I guess, like physical terms. When, when we talk about the earthquake of 1906, what, what exactly do we mean? What is the scope and the scale of this uh, event? Yeah, what we're talking about with the earthquake of 1906 is the big one. Those of us, um, for, for the listeners, we both live in, Dave and I both live in, in Southern California. Um, and, you know, Californians worry about the big one on the San Andreas. And the only example we have of a big one quake hitting an urban area in the short history of California is the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Um, so it was a magnitude 7.8, um, according to the, the current moment magnitude scale. Um, some of the old Richter scale measurements um, made it even bigger in 8.3, although those have been recalculated by, um, by seismologists. So 7.8 is the, the current um, calculation but that puts it in that big one sort of one of the largest quakes you would ever expect to see on the san andreas fault um the epicenter was only a few miles from san francisco um so that's it's also sort of 
almost a direct hit on the city. Um, it, you know, the degree of damage covered a tremendous, a tremendous area. Um, although you also see really wide variations, in particular based on the type of ground in terms of the level of damage. Um, but at the scale used in 1906 to measure earthquakes, a scale called the rossi Farrell scale that went up to a 10, the San Francisco earthquake was a 9. So that also, I think, along with our, our current magnitude scale, sort of emphasizes the um, severity of the quake. I was absolutely stunned at some of the dimensions of the earthquake you gave. I I believe you mentioned, you noted that uh, some parts of Marin County north of San Francisco moved as much as 21 feet. Some parts of the peninsula moved 16 feet. And the earthquake was felt as far south as Los Angeles and as far north as Oregon. And the the dimensions of the, the severe shaking itself were something like 250 miles along the fault and then 35 miles to each side, something like that. So this is an astonishing event. And, and as well, you noted that it, the shaking lasted for something like a minute. So this is absolutely a catastrophic event. Now, what's the immediate effect of this? Um, so it, it also occurred, I don't think we've mentioned the time, it occurred at 512 mm-hmm. in the morning. So most people in San Francisco were asleep. Um, there are only a few you know, early risers, um, you know, mar- you know, market sellers and things like that who were who were awake. Um, so most people were woken up by the quake. Um, they were woken up by, you know, their beds moving across the room, by furniture falling, by pieces of buildings falling off. Um, and this again, varied tremendously by, you know, what neighborhood you were in, particularly by what kind of ground was under your, um, under your home. So, um, yeah, you had you know buildings collapsing, particularly in South of Market. Um, you had you know one of the key things that that took place is you had fires being set off around the city when oil lamps fell over, um, when electrical lines broke, um, and electrical lines did break. You know, gas lines, sewer lines, um, streets buckled, streetcar rails, um, water pipes broke, which is one of the key. Um, elements along with along with the fires getting started um so you had a cascading series of effects which is what um, we very often see with large natural disasters is that it's not just one thing it's this earthquake that then sets off fires and breaks the water pipes that you know would have allowed the fire you know fire department to have maybe a chance of of fighting the fires um, once the water pipes broke and literally all the water stored in those pipes leaks out into the ground in, um, in the city. And then the um, major pipes bringing water into the city actually crossed the San Andreas going down the peninsula. So those shattered. Um, so ultimately, um, San Francisco burned over three days before they were able to stop the fires. What portion of the city burned roughly? Um, about half the acreage of the city burned. Um, it was over 28,000 buildings. And this included um, you know, the major central districts of the city. So um, 80% of the property value of the city was destroyed between the, the fire and the earthquake, and between these two pieces of the disaster. Wow, 80% of the property values? That's astonishing. 
Uh, and I believe you said that in the book, you you found that about 250,000 people were rendered homeless within three days as a result of earthquake and then fire. So we're talking about a major, more than half of the city is homeless, about half of the city's area is burned, and the most valuable uh, properties are burned. Now, you noted that there were some buildings that had been constructed to be fireproof. How did they fare? That also varies. Um, some of the of the fireproof buildings in the city um, did burn. Um, one of the most famous ones was the Palace Hotel, which was um, sort of one of the, the great luxury hotels of the city. Um, there was constructed to be both earthquake and fireproof, and it did get through the earthquake okay. Um, but fires made it in through um, sort of different back ways. Um, the building had had a water supply that was drained to fight fires elsewhere um, on Market Street, and so the Palace Hotel ended up burning. Um, some other buildings, um, the U.S. Mint was one that survived, um, in part because workers stayed there inside the building and fought the fire um, from the inside. Um, so there were a few that survived even in the burn district, but it was a very few and a promise that a building was fireproof did not, um, you know, those often did not hold up to, to this fire. And the the temperatures of the fire reached thousands of degrees. So it it really was a massive, massive fire. How does the fire stop? Did it, did it simply burn itself out of fuel? Uh, did environmental conditions change or, or were firefighters actually eventually successful in containing it? That's a mixture as well. Um, so firefighters did manage to stop the fire at a couple of places um, in the Mission District. Um, there was a successful fight to stop the fire. And then along Van Ness Avenue, which was one of the um, one of only two sort of wide um you know, wide streets in the city, Van Ness and Market. So along Van Ness Avenue, firefighters um, were also able to stop it. But to a great extent, it burned itself out. Um, winds changed and it sort of was pushed back over areas that had already burned. And of course, on the other um, sides of San Francisco, it ran into the waterfront. Um, so there, you know, it ran out of space to go. And um, people were also able to, the, you know, Navy tugboats and things were also able to sort of save a lot of the waterfront, which was important to um, the city's recovery, to have those areas where they could bring in supplies by water. So so it's fair to say then that the worst damage from the earthquake itself tended to be in areas of recent fill, uh, where, where we saw the phenomenon of liquefaction from things like sand and stuff. So the shaking is very severe. Um, the land drops in many places. Um, the fire spreads mainly from those areas is is that is that basically correct yeah um like do the areas that are hit the hardest by the earthquake then become the sort of originators of the fire which then spreads beyond those areas yeah i think that's fair to say there were over 50 separate fires that started in the initial um sort of you know minutes and hours after the earthquake and a lot of that is in because it was so early in the morning um, you know, if a fire gets started in a commercial building and there's no one there to put it out, but a fire in someone's house, maybe they managed to douse that fire. Um, so a lot of them were able to burn for a while before, um, you know, anyone was really there to stop, try to stop them. Um, so the, the sort of movements of the fire are really also a really complicated thing that, um, you know, I, that I certainly talk about in the book, but, um, 
sort of something I, I you know, drew up other people's analyses of that and how that played out. Um, but oh, mostly, yeah, they started in particular south of market mm-hmm. um, where you had Phil, where you had working class neighborhoods and industrial and an industrial district. Um, so you had those two, those two factors coming together. Um, a lot of, you know, poorly constructed buildings and then a lot of industrial buildings where there wouldn't have been anybody there yet at five twelve in the morning. Now, some some wealthier neighborhoods do burn as well, though. It's not simply the case that it's only the poorest neighborhoods that burn. Is that right? That that the the class dimensions of the city do not quite map onto the sort of scope of damage. Right. Yeah. One, I mean, once the fire gets going and with the lack of water, um, it, it's almost unstoppable. So it burns through, you know, Knob Hill and destroys the you know the most valuable mansions. Um, it burns through other high-end district as well as through Chinatown, um, through South Market, through part of the mission, those working class districts. So one of the things that I find interesting um, in the in the story as a whole is that the earthquake and fire, there are, you know, there are elements of sort of unequal impact there, but the, the stronger ones come during the recovery process. Um, so the impact of class and race um, on people's experience of disaster becomes even greater in the process of recovery than with the earthquake and fire itself, which are relatively indiscriminatory, um, although not not completely so, right? So a poorly built, um, you know, wooden lodging house in a working class neighborhood is those are the, those are the buildings that truly collapsed. But the you know the, um, the the earthquake and the fire were so extreme that even many of the, you know, the best built buildings, even the Palace Hotel burns, even the Knob Hill mansions burn. Um, so there was no sort of, um, you know, guaranteed way to escape the impacts, regardless of how wealthy you were. Now, one of the things that I really like about how you treat the city of San Francisco in this work is that you you see it really as the it's an intersection of a lot of different forces uh, and, and of a whole bunch of different complex systems working together. And, and these systems include humans. They include the things that are vital for, for human life in the early 20th century, as well as uh, a whole bunch of other uh, creatures as well. Uh, but before we move on to the, to the aftermath, um, can we maybe discuss the way that San Francisco itself was kind of uh, its connections to the world outside the city were were sort of severed or disrupted. And I'm thinking in particular of things like uh, the availability of water for one, uh, communication and transportation to the rest of the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and I mean, water is the, you know, probably the single biggest disruption. Um, and I think I talked about already the, the shattering of the water pipes that brought um, water into the city. Um, the San Francisco was actually somewhat lucky on that front in that um, the major railroad depot survived. Um, so that became a way to quickly bring supplies in as well as a way that um, people could leave the city um, who needed to. And then, um, you know, much of the waterfront survived. So actually San Francisco, it could have been worse. <laughs> as bad as it was, it could have been worse if they had, had lost those connections um, because San Francisco in, in 1906, it was very much a commercial city. 
um, it was not, it, it was a place where um, I found a, an interesting reference to there was only a couple of days worth of food usually stored in the city. Um, so it was definitely not a, you know, it was, it had these ties um, as, you know, environmental historians have, have traced out for cities, um, you know, starting with Bill Cronin's work, nature's metropolis. Um, but San Francisco was very much, you know, part of one of those networks to a vast hinterland. Um, and those, yeah, communication ties were lost, right? Those water, um, you know, water pipes were shattered. Um, but those ties also became crucial to, you know, the cities were building to relief efforts. Um, so they come, that comes into the, um, the story in a few different ways. And so relief of various sorts uh, begins to arrive relatively quickly. If I recall, the there was a committee in Los Angeles that had trains uh, on the way by the end of the day or by the next day. Yeah, yeah, it came very can quickly. You, can you maybe can you maybe spin out the broader story of relief, uh, sort of uh, both in in cash and in kind? Yeah, and it's that's a whole um, that you know that's a, a central dimension of this story because um, one of the things that that we sort of touched on very briefly earlier that I really try to do in the, this book is to lay out the ways in which a disaster is, is a broader process. And it's not just that moment of the earthquake or even that sort of, th- you know, earthquake plus three days of the fire. Um, but it has these deep historical roots that shape how it, how it plays out. And then it extends um, far beyond those three days um, for you know, the people who are experiencing this um, and through sort of the, um, the process of rebuilding and the, the ways in which um, it continues to, to shape the city. Um, so relief is one of the first steps of that. Um, and it does come, you know, very quickly, particularly from Los Angeles. Um, I think somewhat ironically, the, you know, the communications that were cut off actually led to some initial um, overstated, you know, San Francisco has fallen off the face of the earth, that type of um, you know, that type of overreaction. Um, so it almost gets overstated initially, even as, as bad as it was. Um, but the relief does begin to come in very quickly, um, with so many people with, you know, 250,000 people left homeless, um, within a, you know, four or five days, almost everyone is out of food. So almost everyone is, is sharing experiences of, um, seeking food, standing in bread lines, um, and seeking food relief. Um, no one could, you know, chi- you know, broken chimneys were a major fire hazard. So no one could cook in their homes until their chimney had been inspected, even if your home had survived. Um, so people shared these experiences of cooking on street kitchens um, in the middle of the street. So there's an initially a, a sense of of community, right? A sense of brotherhood um, in disaster. And Rebecca Solner writes about this a lot um, in her, her book, A Paradise Built in Hell. Um, but that, you know, I argue that breaks down pretty quickly as more well-off people are able to, you know, return to their homes, able to, um, you know, if, if their home was destroyed to find a place to live. Um, so you get a, you get a class breakdown where it's poorer people who are left in, um, in refugee camps, you know, living in tents, um, and those had to be located in vacant lots, which are either in the city's parks or, sometimes in, in waste sinks, um, in, you know, places where, you know, trash was being dumped or even manure was being dumped. Um, so you get a, a 
division that develops um, over, you know, within, you know, starting within a few weeks and then intensifying um, over the summer as um, more vulnerable populations, particularly um, working class people struggle to get back on their feet. And this is where we, we start to see some of those um, some of those divisions. And also we start to see mobilization of the refugees, um, which I think is one of the, the very important things to keep in mind um, that they began to protest against um, conditions in the camps to demand an equal share of, um, of these donations, which are coming in and being centrally distributed um, by a committee headed by the former mayor, James D. Phelan. So you have your wealthy business people and you have professional social workers who have taken in the army initially who have taken charge of, of this relief effort. Um, and you have some of the, the working class people, um, and some of them, um, the socialists, some of the more politically activated, um, members of the community who start to, to push against this and to mobilize, um, with different demands. And so the, the groups that are, or the institutions or, groups involved in distributing and sort of managing aid and recovery are uh, the city government itself, the army. Uh, which other organizations become involved? Um, it's actually, you could you can kind of say, the, the army certainly, you can kind of say the city government, although it's not the elected officials who are in charge. They, so they um, sort of... Um, you know, pass that off to these kind of self-appointed um, committees that then um, you know form the the San Francisco Relief and Red Cross funds. Essentially, form a corporation in charge of distributing the relief and sort of managing the the camps. Um, so it becomes professionalized in this um, in this way that sort of combines this, these ad hoc citizens committees, but then also this progressive era um, professionalization and the, you know, trained social workers coming in, Edward T. Devine, who would work with the Red Cross came in um, to oversee it. So you have a, you know, a couple of different elements that are, that are coming into play here. Um, But it's not really the elected city government that's involved, which I, I find one of the interesting well, and particularly because the people doing a lot of the rebuilding, maybe not rebuilding, but but recovery and sort of disaster management, um, they they have particular, I guess we could say, ideological perspectives on how recovery and relief should happen. Uh, and you know, and one one thing you you point out, and I think is is a is a really vital part of understanding the the process here is that. Uh, for many of them, what they really wanted to do was rebuild the city that had that had been lost. Um, and so they were concerned to sort of restore people to their previous status, which therefore meant that not everyone was getting the same kind of relief. Can, can you maybe pull that story apart a little bit and walk us through it? Yeah. Um, so that the applications for aid, um, and aid takes, you know, it takes various forms, um, but there were different levels of aid and in applying for them, they, they did exactly that. They, you know, had this sense of, um, you know, putting people back to, to where they had been. Um, so if you, you know, had owned property, um, you might get a grant to, you know, rebuild your house there, um, you know, a loan to do it. If you had been a renter, 
the best you could hope for was um, a small, poorly built cottage to live in. Um, so that that inequality is you know built into that process, and that's part of what the um, you know the refugees mobilized against. Um, there were also a few of the social workers um, who sort of noted this um, these these incongruities, these inequalities. Um, so there were people noticing it at the time, but the overall sense was that sort of you were more deserving if you had um, your business experience um, or you had owned property that you should then be given a, enough money to sort of rebuild that. Whereas if you had been a, a poor laborer, um, they would only sort of restore you to that level. Um, so one of the demands of, of the refugees was, you know, give us all an equal share of this, this money that we're hearing about um, rather than these, these unequal um, you know, grants and loans that they offered people. And, and can you describe maybe some of the conditions of living in some of the tents and then the earthquake cottages that are put up uh, in the immediate aftermath and, and how we might then sort of see these class divisions play out in, in those cases? And, and I'm thinking in particular of your description of a woman named, uh, I believe Mary Kelly was her name, uh, who plays a, an interesting role in in your story? You you sort of use her to show some of these some of this process. Could you could you maybe tell us about her and and her role in this? Yeah, Mary Kelly is a fascinating figure. Um, she was a working class woman um, who wrote a basically a pamphlet um, describing her experiences and with this scathing critique of the relief committee and the relief efforts. Um, so I use her as a, as a central figure and she became a central figure in this, um, in this refugee mobilization, um, you know, leading marches. She occupied one of the, the earthquake cottages um, when she wasn't chosen for one initially, probably because she was a troublemaker. Um, but, you know, she really speaks to this. And also I think um, for people who maybe, you know, don't know this era, um, speaks to the ways in which women are moving more and more into the public sphere um, in this period. And she would actually um, become an a activist for women's suffrage um, after the, you know, as, as, the, as the city recovered. Um, but the, the conditions in the tent camps, you know, first the tent camps and then the cottage camps were all, you know, often very unfortunate, particularly the tent camps. Um, you had leaky tents, you had, you know, no mattresses, you had no floors, um, you had terrible food in communal kitchens. Um, so that, you know, that was, was a constant, um, you know, danger for the residents, a, a constant challenge. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is, you know, important to think about in terms of, you know, this story as an environmental history is the way you have that initial, um, you know, event of the earthquake, but then you also have people sort of forced to live in much, um, you know, closer proximity to nature, if you will, forced to sort of directly experience, you know, cold winds, heavy rains, um, you know, in these leaky tents, you know, through spring, summer, and then into the fall. Um, and it's not really until, you know, winter is bearing down on, on the city and there's still tens of thousands of people um, living in tents or living in makeshift shelters that they've constructed out of whatever materials they could find. Um, it's not until then that the city really starts to, you know, say, well, we need, we need to do something about this housing crisis. And they start building these, these earthquake cottages, which were a little, you know, two or three bedroom, um, you know, wooden cottages, but no insulation, um, 
usually not connected to plumbing. Um, if you wanted to have, you know, a gas, um, a gas connection that cost extra that most of these, these people couldn't afford. So even once these cottages are built, they're definitely substandard housing. Um, and that, as I mentioned, if you were, if you were a poor working class person, um, that would be the best you could hope for as aid. And those are built on the city's parks and on these same lots where um, the tent camps had been. They were really the only open space in the city. Um, so they were very much temporary homes. And by August of 1907, and then um, pushing into the fall of 1907, um, the refugees who had been living in them were basically kicked out of the parks and forced to find a way to relocate their cottage or themselves if they couldn't move the cottage. Um, so that really one of the the stories of the earthquake of the earthquake's impact on um, San Francisco's working poor is it took a you know people who already lived with tremendous instability, tremendous transience in their lives, and just exacerbated that. Um, you know, forced them out of their homes, then forced them out of these cottages. Um, so it's really a, a very difficult situation, despite a lot of aid that came into the city. Um, but the way it was distributed and the, the sort of real challenges of relief on that level um, led to very and difficult from the perspective, conditions. And from the perspective of those who are administering and distributing relief, um, you describe there uh, what I find is a really common pattern in you know 19th and early 20th century kind of bureaucratic thinking, which is that they, they fear... Uh, that these working populations will become dependent on them and they decide that the best way to, to, you know, sort of forestall that dependence is to withdraw aid. And so you describe a, a process where, um, if I recall, they, they go from distributing food that people could cook to meal tickets, which, which then sort of have to be used at these communal kitchens, which are notoriously bad. And that, that, that seemed like a sort of a good example of how, you know, there there was a lot of aid there that was distributed, uh, but it it dries up pretty quickly, and it's distributed with the intent of pushing these people back into labor markets, uh, back into, I mean, really just off of the sort of out of public responsibility. I guess would be a way to say it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's definitely the case, um, and this is often a a misperception as it is, you know, in, in other situations as well, in terms of um, the fact that the vast majority of people, um, particularly of sort of the right, able-bodied men, the vast majority who are living in these camps are working. They just can't earn enough to get out of the camps. Um, and even a large percentage of women and even some children are working. Um, but you had a tremendously disrupted housing market um, when you think about the, the number of buildings that had been destroyed in San Francisco, rents absolutely shot up. So even people who were working, you know, couldn't find a place to live outside the camps. Um, you have a disrupted labor market. Um, so there are, you know, there are jobs clearing rubble. There are, you know, jobs for, um, you know, some for building tradesmen, for example. Um, there's not much in the way of jobs for someone like Mary Kelly, who was a cleaning lady prior to the earthquake. So um, this is one of the, the problems with this perception that social workers had and that elites had of not wanting to encourage dependency is that you had housing and labor markets that you know, didn't have anywhere for these people to go. 
And so their strategy then basically amounts to forcing large numbers of people to accept really terrible conditions of everyday survival and, and exposure to the elements in, in very blunt ways. Now, you at various points in the text, you, you describe, you, you sort of use the term or, or the concept of disaster capitalism to, to help us understand how some people sort of viewed this particular disaster and the opportunities that, that might be afforded. Now, we'll come back to it uh, a bit more in a moment, I hope. But, but could you maybe tell us a bit about some of the planning, uh, the sort of ideas of urban planning that develop in the aftermath of this? Uh, there's, there's some reports and some sort of plans laid out for what a kind of new San Francisco might look like. Can you describe some of those plans? Yeah. And one of the common reactions to the disaster was, um, you know, to try to see it as an opportunity that here it had, you know, all these old buildings had been destroyed and, you know, it had sort of cleared away obstacles to making San Francisco better. Um, and that's a, I think a common reaction after disasters that, that we'll see often, okay, this is a chance to rebuild better. Um, so there were a number of different, um, examples of this. The the most dramatic one um, was the Burnham plan that San Francisco had actually commissioned a couple of years earlier, a master plan for the city from the famed architect, Daniel Burnham. Um, and they had that on hand. And the original plan with the Burnham plan was that it would take, you know, it would be implemented gradually over decades um, as sort of opportunity arose. But then all of a sudden the earthquake hits and there's a sense among um supporters of the Burnham plan, which included the former mayor, James Phelan, who was the head of the, a lot of the relief efforts um, and sort of advocates of the city beautiful in general, um, that this was their chance to, you know, make San Francisco better, to, you know, deal with traffic congestion, to take full advantage of the scenery of the city. Um, and that, you know, the, the, those sort of dreams ran into the, the challenges of, um, sort of practical challenges of rebuilding of people wanting to get back on their feet as quickly as possible, but then also of people pushing back with their own visions of the city, um, which often drew more on um, the San Francisco that you know they knew and loved that existed before the earthquake. And so one one obstacle to this uh, is that you, I think you found a remarkable quote there, where someone said that the something like the the buildings are destroyed, but you know the the titles to property remain. And so people still own a lot of this land. They may not be interested in these plans. And in many cases, they leave these, uh, you know, tent cities and, and uh, cottages and simply return to the parcels that they own uh, and then sort of scrape together some kind of some kind of accommodation there. Yeah. Yeah. And the Burnham plan required, you know, cutting diagonal boulevards through through the city um, and things like that, that. Um, existing property, you know, property ownership was was really an obstacle too. And so the the real dreams of this blank slate, um, in the wake of disaster, um, you know, didn't really fully think through that those um, those existing obstacles. Uh, we mentioned earlier how those uh, distributing relief and running relief and recovery operations really sought to recreate or preserve perhaps the, the social relationships that existed before the earthquake. Do you think that was true of Burnham's plan as well? Burnham, he wanted to, to really sort of 
perfect and improve the city. Um, but it was, it was on an, a largely an aesthetic level, although he did think some about, you know, traffic, about, you know, commerce in that sense. Um, he wasn't all that concerned with livability beyond issues like, you know, creating scenic drives and, um, that, that sort of very aesthetic, um, level. I, I, you know, talk about his plan as really being sort of the view from the hill version of the city. Um, and particularly in terms of analyzing it from an environmental point of view in sort of sharp contrast to, um, life on the ground, right? So, you know, rubble-strewn streets, um, you know, congested districts like Chinatown. Um, so I think there's a very interesting interplay um, in this rebuilding process between these sort of different ways of viewing the city and these different sort of levels of the environmental city. And I, and I really try to go back and forth and, and think about both, um, you know, sort of the urban environment on the level of ideas and then the urban environment on a a sort of very material physical level. Um, And that's sort of of paralleled here with that sort of view from view from above versus view from the streets um, in the, in the aftermath of the the earthquake and fire. Now I'm really interested to, to come back to the Chinese community in particular and their role in, in, Know, asserting their position within the sort of rebuilding city. But I think this might be a good a good spot to point to another particular vision of a sort of improved San Francisco, which is of a sanitary city that develops in response to uh, one of the environmental changes of the earthquake, which is that it really created environments that were terrific for rats, which carried uh, which carried fleas and and plague. Could you walk us through that a little bit and then and then maybe outline what a sanitary city would look like? in 1906 and, and later as it's implemented. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rats of all the sort of residents of the city who benefited from their, the earthquake or who liked that, um, that disrupted chaotic city, the, the rats would be number one. Um, it's a you know, great place for a rat population boom. Um, and this is one of the um, sort of the, the fascinating, you know, moments that, that, um, plays out and that makes this story so complex and that there had been an initial bubonic plague outbreak in San Francisco a few years earlier, sort of first appearing in the city um, right about 1900 um, and being centered on Chinatown. Um, so the you know cleanup efforts had, had really focused on Chinatown. And this is a, um, an era where you know germ theory is still sort of developing. It's still not you know fully accepted. So the, the science of um, the plague being a disease of, of rats and fleas sort of takes a while to, to come through. But that's starting to, um, to fully take shape when the plague comes back. Um, so it was essentially, um, they thought it was defeated in 1904 in San Francisco, um, but it resurfaces in 1907 in the aftermath of the earthquake. And this time it's not centered in Chinatown. This time, um, it's you know much more scattered all over the place, and they can no longer explain the the plague through old racialized notions of um, of the disease as um, you know being particularly a, a disease of the Chinese and of of Asian people, which that um, had its roots in the fact that there was a 
massive bubonic plague outbreak, um, sort of the, the third great pandemic that had been rolling through Asia for, um, what, 30, 40 years um, prior to um, the early 1900s, when it starts making its way um, around the world through, through global trade, um, which is one of the, sort of the, the environmental history of, of disease in this era. Um, so the plague resurfaces around the city in 1907. And um, the reaction to this is to implement on a broader scale what they had done in Chinatown in 1904, which was really to focus on building out the plague. Um, Dr. Rupert Blue of the U.S. Marine Health Service, who had led that effort um, in 1904, comes back to the city and really mobilizes this, this citywide effort um, to essentially transform the urban ecology of the city. Um, he has a, a great quote that I use in the book where he talked about um, turning San Francisco into one block of concrete throughout to make it this ideal sanitary city. Um, it's very much a, another aspect of this, this progressive era ideal and part of this modernization of the city um, through building the sanitary city. And it takes a number of different um, manifestations. Um, it's getting rid of you know, wooden basements, um, getting rid of any remaining wooden sidewalks, um, stables, um, backyard chicken raising, which is one of the things that, that I find most interesting here, um, both because it's um, often sort of a class and um, sort of immigrant versus a native-born conflict um, in terms of a practices like that, but also because it's one of those things that is now coming back in urban areas. Um, but this is the era where um, a lot of these sort of, you know, ties between sort of food production in urban areas is forced out of the city in the name of sanitation. So these, you know, backyard chicken coops, um, urban farms, um, and, a, and a sort of a cycle of taking city manure out to um, fertilize these, you know, these nearby farms, that all gets shut down in the name of sanitation um, in response to this bubonic plague outbreak. Um, so it's a really interesting transformation in the ecology of the city that is tied into, um, you know, to the earthquake and to this, you know, rat boom and this bubonic plague outbreak. And it seems part of, part of a broader kind of view of a modern, quote unquote, modern city as a city that is more completely uh, sort of delineated from the non-human world. Would, does, is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this is, um, yeah, this, this era that's becoming more feasible, right? More you know, technologically possible, um, but also more of sort of an ideological commitment, I think. And this, this, I think, is a theme that really runs throughout the text, you know, that we, that we have this moment where San Francisco is, is demonstrably, emphatically, uh, catastrophically a seismic city, you know, very much inescapably part of the tectonic forces of, of the earth, right? And yet in the aftermath of this, we see a whole bunch of attempts to kind of, uh, you know, to, to sort of conquer or overcome or pave over those fissures to, to sort of recreate a city that is that is better, but better in the sense that it is not as subject to uh, environmental forces. And, and then like a, an opposite side of that is, is the complaints 
of so many people that you identify of, of simply having to experience the environments. And so we've already seen it like in living in tents. Um, I thought your discussion of, of people complaining about having to walk up hills or stand in the rain, uh, you know, because of streetcar disruptions, either through damage or later on through uh, industrial action, through, through strikes, uh, is, is a, there's a fascinating like interplay here of all of these different forces. And, and maybe one way that we can, we can bring it back uh, to, to the central narrative is to look at the case of the Chinese American community and how they sort of weather this particular crisis, you know, the, the forces that are buffeting them and then how they respond to it. Yeah. And this is one of the, um, the instance that is most, most telling, but also most interesting in terms of, I think, inequality, um, you know, environmental injustice coming in, but also resistance. Um, because the Chinese um, first experienced the um, you know, levels of discrimination in terms of the, the relief effort to such a degree that they basically vote with their feet and you know, stay out of the official relief effort entirely. Um, but they then face a, a series of demands to relocate Chinatown from its central location um, to the outskirts of the city. Um, and this basically an attempt to, to seize their land. Um, and Chinatown was completely destroyed, um, in the earthquake and fire. It's basically a pile of rubble, um, which is quickly looted by, um, white San Franciscans, (laughs) um, in a, in a total reversal of the usual looting, um, narratives that we, that we see with disasters. Um, that's, that's kind of a side point. Right, because we know there are cases of people who are being, uh, uh, in many cases, Chinese people who are who are attacked by uh, by like police or military forces uh, on charges of looting. But then, as you show in the book, there's plenty of cases of uh, white residents who go into the Chinese neighborhoods, loot them, and then are actually selling these products as explicitly as things looted from Chinatown. So we can, we can really see the racial disparities there. Yeah. There's um, it, they're, they're selling these openly as the, and, and this is, yeah, sort of a, a, you know, tourism of the exotic, um, right. Taken to sort of this disaster level and um, you know, this, this disaster tourism. Um, so, but the biggest threat the Chinese face in the aftermath is this proposal to move Chinatown. Um, which is something that's backed by both of the major white political factions in the city. Um, and the, you know, the initial thinking is that this will absolutely happen, right? This, you know, Chinese ghetto, um, and I'm, and I'm quoting there, um, will be moved out of the city. Um, this will be an element of cleaning up the city. Um, this will be an economic benefit and the Chinese mobilize against this. Um, and they draw on alliances with white landlords who owned most of the land in Chinatown and who knew the Chinese to be, um, you know, good tenants, um, valuable tenants in the sense that they couldn't rent anywhere else. So you could overcharge them. Um, so there's not, it's not all, you know, it's not all positive on that. Um, they also draw on, um, international diplomatic alliances. Um, and there I find this very interesting because I think the very fact that, Chinese immigrants could not become naturalized American citizens um, is something that they're able to use to their advantage, that they still have these, you know, these sharp diplomatic ties um, with China that they draw on. They threaten to move um, basically all of the, the trade with China, w- um, with China 
out of San Francisco and to its Pacific Coast rivals, um, to places like you know Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles. So they you know draw on a series of right economic threats and diplomatic ties um, to basically you know fight to be able to maintain Chinatown and be able to rebuild in the same location that Chinatown had been, and they are able to win um, despite being in many ways one of the most vulnerable populations in the city. Um, they're able to, to triumph and get to rebuild Chinatown through these, you know, really clever, um, this really clever set of alliances that they marshal. Um, so this is another great example of how the city was not this blank slate, right? They could just be, you know, reshaped and, um, you know, land sort of, you know, seized and, and reworked. Um, but all the rhetoric around this and the, you know, this very idea of right, Chinatown is this blight that has to be moved out of the city, you know, really strongly reflected the environmental racism of the era. Um, and, and it had this, we, we think of this just as sort of this, this racial element, but it also had this strong environmental element um, of saying this is a, you know, district that you know, fosters disease, that's dark, where the sun doesn't even reach. It's this environmentally distinct place um, in the minds of people, of, of white people at the time. Um, so there's this, I think, really important environmental side to this um, proposal to, to relocate Chinatown. And it also stands as this um, sort of the, the dark side of, of urban rebuilding, right? If you can look at the Burnham plan and you can see this as this right, city beautiful and this, um, you know, making San Francisco better and this missed opportunity and some scholars who have written about it in that way. But when you pair it with this proposal to, to relocate Chinatown, which I think most people now would find a horrifying and, um, you know, very short-sighted idea, um, now that we sort of have the, right now that we value the the diversity and we value that um, the history of that neighborhood very much. Um, so when you pair these, you really see the, um, you know, different sides and different elements of this idea of the, the blank slate and the opportunity um, offered by disaster. Right. And, and especially how any, any sort of rebuilding is going to, there's going to be choices about which interests and ideas are prioritized and, and those who are not prioritized are going to lose, right? And here's a case where the Chinese community is, is in a sense, targeted and manages to, to resist. Now, could we, could we look at another group that, that sees some possibilities in the aftermath of this, of this earthquake? Um, and that would be organized labor in San Francisco. And I'm thinking in particular of the uh, strike by uh, streetcar workers, which takes place in the year, uh, I believe the year after, right? It's 1907 that the strike actually happens. Uh, can you can you talk us through that and, and how this strike, um, for one thing, it's, it's linked to the absolutely fascinating story of the global financial effect of the earthquake uh, that ultimately means that this strike fails. Uh, and I guess this was the case where, where not that much changed uh despite the earthquake or or well i mean you, you talk us through it and and uh set me straight here yeah um and and organized labor initially and organized labor was very powerful in san francisco and um in the early 20th century it was called the labor city um for a reason um labor controlled the government in 1906 um and um you know, you had very powerful unions in the building trades, but also in 
um, some of the, the less skilled trades. Um, and it was an era of a tremendous amount of, of conflict between labor and capital, not just in San Francisco, but in the country as a whole. Um, but that you know, very much manifested in San Francisco in a, in a series of strikes. Um, and so organized labor in the aftermath of the, of the earthquake sees a chance to reassert its, its primacy and its importance and saying, we, you know, the city can't be rebuilt without us, without, you know, the hard labor of, of working men. Um, and they're pushing there against us sort of rhetoric of the, you know, the need for capital to come in. Right. So they're trying to, I think, to assert their own, their own status as equal to, or even greater than, um, than capital. And they talk about, you know, rebuilding the city as a better place for workers. Um, and none of that ends up really, you know, playing out the way the way they want it to. Um, but one of the real manifestations of this is a strike by the Carmen's Union, um, who are, are calling on a, a lot of the rhetoric of um, of the disaster and the transformed urban environment, um, and talking about you know the difficulties of um, navigating the city right through all this rubble, through this rebuilding process, and sort of how much harder their jobs have become um, of, of, you know, running the streetcars through the city. Um, also, I think they're, you know, drawing on some of the economic circumstances that we've talked about a little bit, um, that it has just flat out become more expensive to live in San Francisco. Um, and they see some of the other trades, and particularly the building trades, are one of the few groups that does well initially, um, right, as not surprisingly, there's tremendous demand for their skills. Um, so the carmen who are a little bit below the building trades on the sort of this spectrum of of skilled to unskilled trades, and and also therefore have a, a bit lower wages, um, you know, mobilize and go on strike. Um, and there's some really great quotes that you know that David mentioned earlier about people right the city has become more hilly since the earthquake because people are having to walk it um, whereas they would have been able to ride the street cards um, before so the carmen are hoping to leverage their central role in in transportation in the city um, and San Francisco was a, you know a city that relied very heavily on its streetcar system in 1906 um, and they run into a few obstacles. They run into that um, economic crisis, the Panic of 1907 that David mentioned, which is actually triggered um, to a great degree by the earthquake and by its impact on um, global gold flows um, because British companies had to pay so much um, in the way of insurance payments to San Francisco after the earthquake. So they run into an economic crisis and they run into a political crisis um, which is the, the graft trials, which was the persecution of the union labor government for corruption, um, which had sort of been percolating in the city prior to the earthquake and that which comes to sort of comes to the fore. So they lose their government allies at just the wrong time um, and they run into this economic crisis. Um, so the strike ends up failing. Um, but is, this is another manifestation of um, you know, different groups seeking to assert their power in the city. Um, and I think another sort of case where the earthquake um, 
sort of reaches into, right? Had this sort of effect. I, you can use the metaphor of sort of the aftershocks of the earthquake coming into all these different aspects of urban life um, through this whole, you know, extended rebuilding process that becomes part of this this extended crisis. Um, so the the strike and its failure comes into play there. And from a disaster capitalism perspective, that's usually something we, you know, we talk about like Naomi Klein's work and other work that has looked at it um, in the the neoliberal era post 1960s and these you know these you know, privatizations after the earthquake. And in the progressive era, there's a there's a different push. There's much more, um, you know, of a, of a push for public ownership, much more of a critique of private corporations like the United Railroads, which was the dominant railroad company. So one of the things that actually ends up coming out of this, um, this strike over the long term is the municipal railway and San Francisco taking ownership of um, of its its transportation system, it's a public transit within the city. Now, now thinking about that, and and thinking about the the various threads that you've woven together here, uh, I'm just really struck by by how uh, complex and at times contradictory the sort of process is. And and I wonder, and and maybe this question is is too simple for such a phenomena, but do you see this moment as one of profound change, or do you think it's marked more by a broad continuity? I think it's more of a broad continuity, actually. Um, And I think it's more, it's an intensification of a lot of things that were already underway in this, you know, this sort of transition to a modern city. Um, In in places, there is sort of, right, you know, pushback and interruption of these processes. Um, But I think there's a lot of continuity that takes place. Now uh, we're we're nearly out of time. I do want to I do want to have one more uh, substantial topic, though. I want to consider the the question of the process of researching and writing this book, uh, because this is a this is a very wide ranging text, and I'm just thinking of the different kinds of sources that you use here. There's extensive photographic documentation. There are various reports by government or other agencies, including things like planning. Uh, but also like the sort of the seismic uh, professionals report. Uh, and then there's, then there's just immense numbers of personal accounts here. And I'm thinking of the, uh, the accounts of several journalists. Uh, you follow a journalist, I believe his name was Hopper uh, around a little bit, who had, who had some very interesting stories to tell from the first days. You tracked people like Mary Kelly. Uh, you get into the, the labor dynamics of this. How how did you approach this this topic? Did did you set out uh, with the goal of the nineteen oh six earthquake, or did you did you come at it from a different angle, or you know what went on here? I came at it initially from the angle I, I wanted to do an um, I wanted to work on an urban environmental topic, and I wanted a, something that would really let me get at the diversity of experiences of people in in the city. Um, so getting away from a, a sort of dichotomy of right city and nature and really breaking down that city side um, for the different experiences of, of different people. Um, and I had, you know, I did my undergrad work at Stanford. So I had spent time in the Bay Area. I lived in Berkeley for a few years before graduate school. Um, I love the Bay Area. Um, so I you know, picked San Francisco. Um, I sort of picked the earthquake as a, as a you know, focus point um, without, you know, any particular intention there. Um, and as I, and I, and I thought that the disaster would let me, um, sort of see a lot of the things that are hidden 
often in, in the functioning of a city. A lot of the things that are, are so um, commonplace to people that they don't really talk about them, so they can be hard to get at as a historian. Um, so I thought that the disruption caused by the disaster would reveal a lot of those things, which I think that it did. And I think that that angle ended up playing out. Um, but it was really as I was working on the project that Hurricane Katrina happened um, and sort of, you know, disasters became much more um, of, a, of an interest in themselves for, for scholars and for Americans in general. Um, so that angle ended up, you know, being more important than, than I thought it was going to be when I initially picked the topic. Um, but it definitely was, it was a big topic. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, a tremendous number of sources. There's a, a sort of story that the earthquake destroyed so many you know documents in San Francisco, which it did. Um, but a, a crisis like this, particularly in this era when, you know, people are taking photographs, um, you know, people are you know writing their accounts. I think that that's true in other eras. Progressive um, groups love to write reports, um, so there's a, there's a tremendous number yes. of, of sources there. Um, that's almost a like deceptively um, you know easy source in some ways because I think one of the things that took me a while to do was to you know sort of get away from their interpretations and sort of develop my own and you know avoid getting captured by those sources. Um, that was something that took a while. Um, you know, there's a tremendous number of newspapers and I really tried to, to find the, um, the places where I could find the voices of the people we hear less from in history. So I, you know, I sought out the, you know, the labor newspapers and the, you know, the different working class newspapers and the issues that have survived of those, um, to really try to bring those voices to the forefront in the book. Because one of the things I, you know, I really wanted to do was to you know, fulfill that idea of, um, you know, getting at the diverse voices and diverse experiences of different urban residents and sort of bringing together environmental and social history um, in that sense. So it ended up being, you know, a very big project and drawing on, um, you know, public health and planning and all of these different sort of, you know, histories that have their own, their own historiographies and their own, um, literatures to think about. So it, it was a, definitely a challenging project in that sense, but I think it also is one of the unique elements of the book um, that's able to you know, focus in in such detail on um, sort of one, one disaster and sort of one, one incident and think about all these different you know, areas that it touches on and all these different ways that it affects um, the history of the city. Um, so I think it ended up you know, coming together, but it definitely was one of those you know, topics where there's, you know, there's rather than too few sources where there were too many sources and sort of, you know, balancing that was definitely a challenge. Well, I, I think you've met the challenge extremely well. Uh, the book is Seismic City, an environmental history of San Francisco's 1906 earthquake. Joanna Dill, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, David. It's been wonderful.